Scripture reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 13. Revelation 13, verses 5 through 10. Follow along as we read. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was, all, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Let's pray. Father, now as we move into the worship of the Word, the preaching of the Word, we pray that your Spirit would be working as our pastor preaches, as we listen, that we would hear from you this morning, that we would learn and be instructed, rebuked, corrected, and trained in righteousness, that we may be equipped for every good work. Bless our time now, Lord, as our pastor comes in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace to you this morning. It's good to be here together. Tribulation, pestilence, coronavirus. Pete gave me something he thought that I might need this morning, so I thought I might get that out and uh, put this on for you. I don't know if I get to keep this or not, Pete. Okay, it's going on eBay. I'm going to get that on there. And, um, seriously, this is out of my comfort zone. This isn't something that I normally would like to do. I'm not a Al Mohler and the daily briefing. I don't, I'm not good on commentary of those kind of things. I, I do not like sensationalizing things, capitalizing on current events. Those are just cheap promotions that, uh, I don't know, try to boost attendance of a church and come out for this, come out for that. And, and what happens when a church falls into those things, when their quest to be relevant and to get, you know, the current events to get people interested to come out, Usually what happens is it happens at the expense of healthy, sound doctrine. And, and then the church's quest to become relevant ultimately become the most irrelevant institution in the world when you abandon sound theology. I, uh, I was thinking of some of the past fears Sounds like there's a huge leak over there, but I'm assuming they're just draining the baptismal. Um, I think back, like over the Y2K. Some of you are old enough to remember Y2K. Oh man, all the fear that was going on about that. I wonder. I wonder how many people listen to sermons about Y2K. I don't think anybody does. Or 2004, it was the SARS. SARS was everywhere. I don't know how many pastors capitalized on SARS and had messages, but I don't think anybody is looking up 
sermons about SARS. So that was my skepticism about the coronavirus. You know, this, this too will pass. The difference is this. The coronavirus, SARS, it is pestilence. And pestilence is in the Bible. It's, it's in the Bible a lot more than what I realized. And it has to do with the tribulation. And since we've been talking about the Antichrist and, and by association, the tribulation now is probably the best time to address something like this. The coronavirus is the news. I mean, that's what's on the news. I heard, I guess yesterday, the first confirmed cases in Kansas and now in Missouri as well. There's no need for me to elaborate on the virus itself or talk about where it came from or, you know, what to do. There is a lot of fear, and there's a lot of fear-mongering going on, uh, creating fear. And, and of course, the media has certainly had a hand in that. I think they have vested interests in that. There are political interests in that. But even more so, it is really capitalizing, I think, on an underlying fear that humanity has, the fear of death. And the reality, this could be it. This could get us. And it's scaring people. The question that I want us to think about, and to, I really did not want to do this. I was not going to do this. I, I was ready to be done with the Antichrist. I was ready to be done with eschatology and move on. And actually, when the announcement came out, my wife took a screenshot of it. She thought I'd been hacked. She's like, what in the world are you doing? This, this isn't like you, because it's not like me. I, I don't like to do these things. But I do think it is important that in the midst of something like this, we ask ourselves, how do we think about this as Christians? How how do we react to this? How do we live? Uh, I heard one particular source that this coronavirus is God's judgment on China because of their recent crackdown on the church and that God is judging them. There was a pastor in New Zealand, Brian Tamaki, who proclaimed that, quote, tithe-paying Christians are protected from the coronavirus by Psalm 91, which Psalm 91 says, You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness. And I looked really close into the Hebrew, and I couldn't find anything that said anything about paying tithes in Psalm 91, but Pastor Tamaki said, if you're a tithe-paying Christian, you will be protected from the coronas. He said, because viruses travel through the air controlled by satanic spirits, only Christians covered by God can avoid being affected. There's all kinds of stuff out there. Tribulation, pestilence, coronavirus, how then shall we live? And that's what I want to do. I want to start with tribulation is coronavirus part of the tribulation? I want to look more specifically at pestilence that is in the tribulation that we know of in the Bible. And then finally, what do we have to do? What, how, how do, what do we do with this coronavirus? So I want to start by looking at tribulation, particularly. There is a very important paradigm that I want us to see about the tribulation. In our study of Second Thessalonians, I have highlighted that the rapture and the second coming, in my conviction and understanding, are one event. What that means, for those of you that may not be able to connect the dots, if the rapture and the second coming are one event, that means believers would be going through the tribulation, right? And that's, that's honestly the big kicker right there. 
If that wasn't there, everybody would probably be agreeing with me. Oh, yeah, that's all one event. But it's that tribulation thing, right? This tribulation. We're going to be going through the tribulation. And I get it. It's distressing. And I don't know if anybody goes, man, somebody jokingly said, I think you just enjoy suffering. Wrong guy. I hate suffering. But the idea of tribulation does provoke a sense of dread, of fear, like, oh, I don't want to do that. And maybe, maybe that's what's going on with the Thessalonians. Remember, they thought they had missed the day of the Lord. Maybe they thought they had missed the rapture. Maybe they thought they were in the tribulation. That's very possible. Why would you dread the tribulation? What, what's the problem? Well, it's, it's suffering, right? And where does that suffering come from? And, and there are two components. Now, those of you that are pre-trib, which means you think there's going to be a rapture before the tribulation, you can get your ear, earbuds out and, and you can plug in my sermon from about two or three Sundays ago about seven reasons why it's one. Listen to that again and see if you'll be convinced and go back. But no, the tribulation, there are two components really to the dread of the tribulation, to the the first component to the tribulation is the wrath of God that is going to be poured out upon the, the, the earth. That's, that's a terrifying thought. It's a wrath that will be cosmic, celestial, angelic, never before seen proportions. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21, there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And those those judgments, that wrath of God is categorized for us in the book of Revelation in seven trumpets and seven bowls. God's pouring out his wrath on the earth. And it's utterly terrifying. If you haven't read Revelation again, read it. It's dark. It's scary. But there is another wrath that makes up the component of the tribulation. Not only the wrath of God, but you have the wrath of the Antichrist that is unleashed against the saints the terror that he is going to bring upon the church. So the text that Brent read for us, Revelation 13, 7, <clears throat> excuse me, it was allowed, the Antichrist, to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Where does that come from? Daniel 7:21. I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Now, this is clearly at the revelation of the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation. Um, He's making war against the saints. And unless there's some type of mass conversion in the tribulation, which I don't think there will be, that's us. He's, He's making war against the saints, against believers, against Christians. Now, what I want to make clear on... and these two components, the wrath of God and the wrath of the Antichrist. Believers, saints, will only experience one of those. We will experience the wrath of the Antichrist. We will experience persecution. That's going to happen. I don't see any warrant in Scripture that says, oh, When this persecution breaks out, I'm going to rescue you from this persecution because that would really make a mockery of the persecution that's going on all around the globe right now. When you hear what is happening to believers right now in places like China, in places uh, uh, 
Pakistan or India, and the things that are happening to them, their arrests and their tortures and their beheadings and all those things, they are not experiencing anything more than what the Antichrist can do. They're not being raptured from that. There is nothing in Scripture that oh, when this happens, I'll save you from this suffering. We're not to fear that wrath. In fact, Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body, but can't kill the soul. Fear him who can destroy both in hell. So we're going to experience persecution. We're already experiencing persecution, and the Antichrist can't do anything more than kill us. That's, that's the worst he can do. So we will experience that component in tribulation. We will not experience the wrath of God. We will not experience. Remember, there's two components. God pouring out His wrath on the earth, all those terrifying things, and the wrath of the Antichrist. Guarantee you, you would much rather face the wrath of the Antichrist than the wrath of Almighty God. Paul categorically tells us in the first letter, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, listen to what he says. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Whose wrath? God's wrath, no doubt. God, we are not destined for God's wrath. That is right in chapter 5, where he's talking about the what's going to happen at his coming. And it brings comfort. You are not destined for this wrath of God. Now, to be honest, many people would see 1 Thessalonians 5.19 as a proof text for the rapture because God is going to take us out. He's not going to let us experience the wrath of God in that way. And I get it. That's, that's legit. That's not some heretical understanding. That's a possibility. But there is an alternative to this. And that alternative is that God protects us in the midst of that wrath, that God exempts us from it. It's around us. We need to understand, if you don't already, um, when people preach from the book of Revelation, when they study it, they do so with a set of presuppositions. They do so with a paradigm already established. You, You don't come to the book of Revelations and you're preaching it and you're like, oh, what is... You come and... You already have your mind made up whether the, there's going to be a rapture before the tribulation or after. You already have your mind made up whether there's a distinction between Israel and the church or not. You already have your mind made up whether there's going to be all mill, pre-mill, or post-mill. You read and interpret the book of Revelation through that paradigm. That's just the way it is. I would suggest to you that it would be wise for all of us to consider. I do it. Everyone does it. It would be wise for us to consider the paradigm, the presuppositions that the Apostle John would have had available to him, not only available to him, but the paradigm he would have known. And you know what it was? I think I might have heard it. It was the exodus out of Egypt. God had already delivered his people One time, they were being oppressed by Pharaoh. They were groaning under the oppression, and God delivered him. 
He delivered His people by pouring out His wrath upon the Egyptians and bringing His people out. And moreover, you have the prophets after the Exodus. You remember the children of Israel get exiled again. You have Isaiah and Jeremiah. Guess what? They're, they're promising another coming deliverance. And guess what language they use? They use the language of the Exodus. We call it a new exodus. God's going to do it again. He's going to deliver His people again. And that new exodus points to the ultimate final exodus. There's a book that came out in 2015 called The Ultimate Exodus, a commentary on the book of Revelation by W.J. Stern. And he uses the exodus as the paradigm to understand Revelation. And he points out 34 distinct parallels in Revelation to the book of Exodus. It's incredible. John is thinking about the Exodus. It's the deliverance that God's people are going to receive in Revelation is being thought of in the terms of the Exodus. God protecting His people and delivering them while pouring out His wrath upon the nation. So when I hear Paul say that God has not destined us for wrath, it's not that He's taken us out, but He's going to protect us from. And this isn't... Anything new, this is what Peter argued. He said the Lord brought a flood upon the earth and preserved Noah, and he turned Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, and he rescued Lot. Second Peter 2 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the righteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God knows how to do it. If there is a way to protect or rescue the righteous and yet keep the unrighteous for judgment, he knows how to do it, and he did it in the Exodus. I, I want you, to, I'm, I'm just going to summarize it because it's, it is an important logic here. It is an important argument for me to just kind of rehash this, but go back and read it. You see this pattern in the Exodus. Israelite is under the, the oppression of Pharaoh. They are growing. And, and the Lord comes to Moses and goes, you're going to see what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. And then later on, he says, he's not going to listen to you. And I'm going to lay my hand on Egypt. And so God, through Moses, is going to begin to pour out His plagues on the land of Egypt. He turns their water into blood. It's very clear in Exodus, the frogs come into their houses, their bedrooms, their bed, the houses of their people and their servants, not the children of Israel. It's, it's the Egyptians. The frogs are invading the Egyptians. Pharaoh, they're going to be in your bed, but the, not the Israelites. I will send swarms of flies on you, Pharaoh, and your servants and your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also on the ground in which they stand. Egyptians, your houses are going to be swarming with those things. He'll send a severe plague on the livestock of Egypt. He will strike them dead. But in Exodus 9-4, the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. Interesting. Boils. Boils came down upon the magicians, and it says, upon all the Egyptians. The magicians and all the Egyptians. Not the Israelites. They didn't have boils. Hail. Oh, man. Hail like they had never seen before. Except in 926, it says, only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. What? You mean God could make it hail and not let it hail? Yes. He protected His people. They didn't experience His wrath. Locusts. 
They shall fill your house and the house of all your servants and all the Egyptians. Darkness. Oh, a darkness that was so dark they could feel it. They did not see 1023. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. The firstborn. All your firstborn will die. Every family member, every servant, every cattle, every dog, all your firstborn will die, Egypt. But in chapter 11 it says, But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. God poured out His wrath on the land of Egypt, but He protected His people and delivered them with a mighty hand. And I submit to you, that's the exact paradigm that the Apostle John is not only available to him, but he knows and he sees the prophets use them, and that's how we need to understand the book of Revelation. You see it in the book of Revelation. In the Exodus, there were a plague of locusts, right? Well, the fifth trumpet, guess what happens? Locusts come like having power like scorpions. Listen to what it says in Revelation 9.4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant. So these locusts are coming, and they're not going to eat anything green. They are not to harm. The only people they are to harm are those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Sovereignty, God, you're going to go out, you're not going to eat grass, you're going to attack these people, those that don't have the seal of God on their foreheads. They're not going to experience this attack or swarm of locusts, whatever they may be. Believers are protected from the wrath. So you need, when we think about revelation or the tribulation, you need to realize we are not destined for wrath. I don't know how God's going to do it. My dad asked me the question, you know, I hear a lot of people say we're going to live through the tribulation, but no one ever tells us how. And that's true. I don't hear a bunch of sermons how, or that just revert to uh, survivalist instincts, you know, do this. No, we're going to live, and we're going to die, but we will not experience the wrath of God. Period. And if I'm not experiencing the wrath of God... The wrath of the Antichrist is already, his spirit is already alive and well. So tribulation, there is a paradigm there. We are protected from the wrath of God, but let's move to pestilence. Pestilence, a deadly disease that spreads rapidly. Pestilence is, is, is not something that the Bible is unfamiliar with. In fact, it's found over 55 times in the Bible, most in the Old Testament. What's striking about this word pestilence? Um, in almost every occurrence in the Old Testament, it is a judgment sent by God. A judgment sent by pestilence isn't just some rogue viruses that get God sends pestilence. He sends it upon Israel's enemies. Some people think when God struck down Sennacherib and his armies, it was through pestilence, dead overnight. The book of Habakkuk, God has told them that the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to judge the, the people of God, and Habakkuk is 
mortified. You're, you're bringing ungodly people to judge the set. What are you doing? And, and God has to reveal himself to him. And he says, well, you just wait and see what I'm going to do to the Babylonians. And it says in Habakkuk 3, 5, God reveals himself. He comes out of his throne. And it says before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Before him, he sends pestilence. Behind him, he leaves plague. This is God. Perhaps the most striking thing about pestilence in the Old Testament is that if you look in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, remember God, He gave the blessing and the curses. If you keep the covenant, you're blessed. If you don't keep the covenant, you're going to be cursed. One of the explicit, repeated curses of the covenant breaking was God's going to wipe you out by pestilence. He's going to send pestilence. And the overwhelming occurrences of the word pestilence in the Old Testament are in the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, where God is sending pestilence upon his people for covenant breaking. Ezekiel 14. It's a beautiful passage. I hope you'll write these down and look at them at some other time. Ezekiel 14 the doom of Jerusalem has been sealed. God is going to just wipe this city out. He's wiping out Judea. And it's, it's a fascinating passage because the Lord says, I don't care if, who's the three here? I, I wrote them down. Um, I don't care if Noah, Dan, or Job would try to intercede. They will only deliver themselves by their righteousness, no one else. That's, re- that's repeated like three times. I'm coming, and I don't care if a Noah, if a Daniel, or a Job tried to stand up and intervene. The only person they'd save is themselves by their righteousness, but I am coming, and nothing will stop me. And then it says this, Ezekiel 14, 21, For thus says the Lord, How much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence. There's nothing that's going to stop me from wiping them out. These are my four disastrous acts of judgment. Sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence. That was for covenant breaking. The reason that applies to us, those the time when God comes in judgment, they're called the day of the Lord. When God comes, He's going to judge. And there are a number of day of the Lords in the Old Testament, and they could have been referring to the time when God was going to judge the Assyrians or judge the Babylonians. But those days of the Lord, of God coming, or even to judge His people, they all pointed to the ultimate day of the Lord that Paul talks about in Thessalonians, the day when God is going to come in final judgment. He's coming. And so when you read the day of the Lord, that is a rich Old Testament term. And what you find in the prophets is this. God is coming, and He's not just coming against Israel's enemies. He's not even just coming against Jerusalem or Israel for their disobedience. He's coming against the whole world for their disobedience. I'm going to read to you Isaiah 24 because it's just, it's the indictment. It's why, it's why we have the book of Revelation. Isaiah 24 verse 1. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. The Lord, the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered for the the Lord has spoken this word. 
Verse 5 of chapter 24, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. They have transgressed the laws. They have violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Verse 19, the earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. The transgression of all humanity reaches its limit, and God comes. In Isaiah 26, 21, For behold, the Lord is coming out from His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. He's coming. And that's Revelation. That's the day of the Lord. He is coming. Guess where we see God's four disastrous acts again. I think I heard the word apocalypse. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. We we find it in Revelation chapter 6. These angelic creatures who take peace away from the earth. You have a white horse who comes with the crown and conquering. You have a bright red horse where people slay each other. You have a black horse as famine of pale horse whose name is death and Hades. And listen to what it says about them in Revelation 6.8. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts. God's four disastrous acts of judgment. These four horsemen. And of course we have in that our key word pestilence. The Greek translates it literally death. It's from the Hebrew word deber, which means pestilence or plague. God's sending plague in judgment as part of the end times and the breaking of those seals. So we have tribulation. We have pestilence God uses in judgment. So what about the coronavirus? Are we in the tribulation? Is this the judgment of God? No, we're not in the tribulation. That should be a relief to you, relief to me. I think coronavirus is a judgment that falls clearly in the category of what we would call birth pains. Birth pains which is a very significant category of judgment. Jesus used birth pains in the way that things are going to happen. They're not the actual event, but they are signs of a great coming judgment. Just like a woman who starts having labor pains, that's a sign there's a baby coming, but this isn't going to be a cute little baby. This is going to be the wrath of God Almighty. There are signs. So Jesus speaks about these in Matthew 24, 5, and they have an interesting correlation to the apocalypse of the four horsemen. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. They will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And then he says in Matthew 24, 8, all these are but the beginning of birth pains. These are just signs. 
that there's a great wrath coming. In the parallel passage of Jesus' teaching on the Olivet Discourse, you have Luke 21, verse 8. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Again, he's, you're going to hear these things happening, but it doesn't mean it's the end. He said, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences. Again, you see God's four acts, disastrous acts of judgment, the apocalypse of the four horsemen. These are all birth pains. These are simply signs of a coming judgment. The other place, when I talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, I want to just take, do I have time? I think these are part of the birth pains. So you go to Revelation 6, and you can turn there, but you, you don't have to turn there. But you have these four horsemen. Like, where, where are the four horsemen come from? It's just a, another example of where does this come from? It comes from the Bible. It comes from the Old Testament. It comes from Zechariah chapter 1. In Zechariah chapter 1, Zechariah sees a vision of these angelic horsemen. They're set out to patrol the earth. Zechariah 1, they have different colored horses and they're out. What are you doing? We're patrolling the earth. What have you found? The earth is at rest, they said. It's calm. It's at ease. You say, oh, that's great. Not in Zechariah. That's horrible. You know why? Because God's people, Israel, they're in exile. They're being oppressed and plundered and the nations are at ease. In the apocalypse of the four horsemen, You have God sending out those angelic patrols and say, I don't want the earth to be at ease. Go stir up trouble. While my people are being afflicted, while my people are being persecuted, while my people are in exile, you think I want the nations at ease? Go out. Take away their rest. Take away their peace. That's what the four horsemen are doing. Wars and rumors of war, swords, famines, pestilence. When you hear this coronavirus, do you think the nations are at ease? No, they're not. They're stirred up. What's going on? Another place where we find birth pains is Romans chapter 8. It's the description of the curse that the whole created order is under. Romans 8, the whole creation is in bondage to corruption, groans in pains of childbirth. Now this may be a childbirth of just waiting for the redemption, or it could be waiting for God to come and and judge evil, but it's still this childbirth that the, the creation is in bondage to corruption. The whole of humanity is under this curse of corruption and death. All of humanity. And guess what? Believers are too. We're getting old and gray hair and our ears, we can't, and we start getting farsighted. We start doing this because our bodies are breaking down and we get things like cancer and diseases and MS and the flu. We get the flu. I'm not a scientist, I'm not a biologist, but I know this much. The coronavirus is a virus, and the flu is a virus. 
I don't think I've heard anybody ever make the claim that Christians won't get the flu virus. Why all of a sudden are we saying, oh, Christians won't get the coronavirus? That's insane. I don't think coronavirus means we're in the tribulation. So what it means is these are birth pains. These are signs of a coming judgment. So how do we respond to this? How, how do we live? That's what I want us to just, I want us to go out and like, because, you know, I mean, honestly, it does, I don't want to get coronavirus. I don't want to get the flu either. How do we live, though? And there's a, there's a lot of people unsettled to hear that it's right yesterday, Johnson County, you now St. Louis, it's coming. What are we supposed to do? Are, are we supposed to cancel school? Should we cancel church? How are we supposed to interact? How are we supposed to live? I think that's an important question. Well, a couple of things, uh, one, two, three, four, four things I want us to lay a foundation of, okay, to guide us in this, what we are going to do and how we're going to act. And, and the first, let's just lay a very firm foundation. We, we need to remember that God is absolutely sovereign. God is in control. Like Dr. Sproul used to say, there is no maverick molecule if God is sovereign. There's not even the smallest little molecule out there that can do anything outside of His sovereign control. God knows exactly where the virus began, how it is spread, where it's at right now. I mean, just to think, on God on His radar knows exactly where the virus is, controls exactly where it goes, could keep you in it, could put you... It's He has it all under control. Plagues aren't new. Things like this aren't new. They've happened all throughout history. In fact, that's, again, why I think we are living in the last days, and we've been living in the last days since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle John says, we know it is the last hour right now. And it has been for the last 2,000 years. The the horsemen are stirring up the nations. There is famine and pestilence and wars and rumors of wars. And it's been like that for 2,000 years. During the Martin Luther, during his era, there was a horrible outbreak of the plague. Charles Spurgeon, there was two outbreaks of cholera. People were dying left and right. During the plague that broke out in Germany, Martin Luther actually, because of all the worry and fear, actually wrote a little pamphlet entitled, Whether One May Flee from a Deadly Plague. Can we flee from this? Is it a, as Christians, what should we do? Can we run? Can we hide? And I, it was, it's a, really a practical document. You should check it out. He, he basically says whether you flee or not, he said that's up to you and your faith. The weak or may want to flee. If you're strong, you want to stay. It's basically a matter of Christian liberty or Christian conviction. But he said this, If it is God's will that evil come upon us and destroy us, none of our precautions will help us. Everyone has to take this to heart. God's sovereign over this, and if it's, it doesn't matter whether you flee or not. If you have your Bibles and you're in Revelation, I'd like you to turn back to Revelation 13. Revelation 13. This is in the period of the, the tribulation. This is when the Antichrist is waging war against the saints and conquering them. Verse um, 7. I want you to see what John says in verse 9. 
If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. What? What is this? What are you talking about, John? Well, interestingly enough, um, this is a, it's not just an illusion, it's a quote from Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 15.2, maybe some of your Bibles have that cross-reference there. God is going to judge Israel. He's going to judge them for their, their rebellion. And they ask Jeremiah, where, where shall we go? What to, uh, so if this is going to, where shall we go? Listen to Jeremiah 15.2. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, those who are for pestilence to pestilence, those who are for sword to the sword, those who are for famine to famine, and to those who are for captivity to captivity. But where do I go? Well, those of you that are destined to pestilence, you're going to die of pestilence. Those of you that are destined to sword, you're going to die by the sword. Those of you that are destined for captivity, you're going to go to captivity. That's what's going to happen to you. What's fascinating is John takes that verse, applying it to us, those of us who are going to be facing the wrath of the Antichrist. He leaves out pestilence and famine, and he only includes those that are destined to the sword. To the sword you're going to go. Those destined to captivity, to captivity you go. The point, he leaves out pestilence. Because we're not going to be facing pestilence or famine, because that's God's judgment on the nations, but we will face the wrath of the Antichrist. And if God has ordained you to be arrested, you'll be arrested. If God has ordained that you're going to be a martyr, a martyr you will be. It's under God's sovereignty. You see that? I mean, it's... It's a beautiful thing. God is an absolutely in control. No protective measures, no survival kit, no armed resistance is going to stop God's sovereign plan for your life. So if you're thinking, man, I'm ready for the Antichrist, it's not going to stop it. That's not going to work. This whole thing is under God's plan. He has ordained some to be arrested. He will ordain some to be martyred, and you will be martyred. This isn't fatalism. I love what G.K. Beale says. With such discernment, they should be strengthened to endure their destiny of captivity, in prison, or even death. You're, you're going to you're going to face this. You understand it. Which really is my second point. We're God's sovereign. So, so what are you going to do? If God is absolutely sovereign, he's in control, well, look at the end of verse 10. All this is going to be ordained by God. He can protect me from this virus or not. And I'm, I'm obviously extrapolating verse, nine, or verse 10 there, what's happening in the tribulation to all of life. God is absolutely sovereign. And if he has ordained something to happen, like Martin Luther said, there's nothing you're going to do to stop that including coronavirus. So what happens? How do we live? God is sovereign. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. It's, it's encouragement. First of all, don't, don't compromise and bear up under this. this. You need to endure this and, and hold fast your faith in God who is in control. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This is, this is the way we face all suffering. This is the way we face all trial and tribulation. This is what Peter said. 
We should suffer according to the will of God and entrust our souls to a faithful creator. We need to understand this. Getting the coronavirus would be no different than getting MS or rheumatoid arthritis and be confined to a wheelchair for for over 10 years. That's, That's God's sovereign. No one signs up for MS. That's all part of God's sovereign working in our lives. What do you do when that happens? What do you do if you get cancer? It's a call for endurance and faith of the saints. That's what it means. It means you hold fast. You, you, you endure. You, you know God is good and you believe him and he's going to strengthen you and you hold on. This call for endurance and faith of the saints means one thing we don't do is give in to fear or panic. We really should not be fearing this virus. And I'm not saying you don't take ordinary precautions. I'll sell you my mask after church if you want one. I'll I'll talk about practical, but... Your life should not be controlled or dominated by fear of this corona. We do not fear what they fear. We don't have to fear death. We know God is in control. There is a fascinating story. Spurgeon, when he became pastor, and the cholera epidemic broke out twice. But he would go and he, he would minister to the sick and to the dying sharing the gospel with him. And after this was happening, people were dying and getting sick all around him, and he would be laid into the night, and he was bone-tired and getting discouraged, and I'm sure his wife was was concerned because he could bring it home. And he's coming home one night, and and this track, this, this newspaper blew in, and you know what it had on it? He picked it up and it started reading, and it had Psalm 91.5 on it. Don't fear the pestilence. And he said it was this, he just, he was just picked up encouragement and boldness to go on. God can protect me from pestilence. I'm not going to fear this. It's been said, I've not confirmed that, that the command to fear not occurs 365 times in the Bible. One day, one command for every day. Why are you fearing? If there's one thing believers should not do is fear. Be anxious. God's in control. So, God's sovereign. I'm not going to fear. I'll trust. I'll endure through his strength, whatever God has for me. Thirdly, what do we do? We need to recognize the unique opportunity we have to bear witness not only to the coming judgment, but to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a unique opportunity. What's happening today is not unlike what happened in Jesus' day when Galileans were killed by Pilate and a tower collapsed and 18 were killed. And they said, Jesus, were these worse sinners? This happened because they sinned. And what did he say? No, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Is God judging China because of the coronavirus? No, America, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Is God judging someone because they get the coronavirus? No, 
unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It is a testimony of the coming judgment. Look, you, you see this? There's something coming, and if you don't repent, it will happen to you. The coronavirus is a unique opportunity to bear witness to the coming judgment of God. There is an excellent article in Banner of Truth. I want to just read this to you quickly, a small paragraph. The coronavirus should impress upon us afresh that this world is passing away, that history is not going around in endless circles, but heading towards a great and terrible day of judgment. It should drive us to pray and to witness to the loss around us with ever greater urgency. The vi- this virus is no respecter of persons. It cannot be contained. There is no vaccine. The world is at its mercy. How much more terrified should people be of the judgment of God when it sweeps over them suddenly, unstoppably, affecting every person who has ever lived, no matter where in the world they are? This pandemic and every pandemic is small, is a small, pale shadow of the ultimate judgment of God. The article went on to say there is a vaccine for God's judgment. There is a cure, and it's found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have it. We have it. I've said before, to me, it's pretty obvious that our evangelistic efforts in the United States um, are not very effective. We definitely don't see a lot of people coming to Christ. And I think we need to recognize that this message that God loves you so much and He just wants you to accept Him is largely falling on deaf ears, mainly because people are already pretty convinced God loves them. That's They're not struggling with that. And so when we come and say, hey, God loves you, just accept Him, they're good. What's not being done in evangelism today is preaching judgment. People are at ease. People aren't being stirred. But you know what? Corona's changing that. They're, they're getting stirred up. They fear this thing. During the cholera outbreak, listen to what Spurgeon said. If there ever be a time when the mind is sensitive, it is when death is abroad. I recollect when I first came to London how anxiously people listened to the gospel, for the cholera was raging terribly. There was little scoffing then. It's an incredible opportunity. People are scared to death. Their fear of dying. We can preach the gospel. And there was an article in World Magazine. Guess what the underground church is doing in Wuhan, China right now? They're handing out masks and gospel literature. They're preaching the gospel. That's incredible. There's viral videos of them going out and doing this. They're not afraid. They're going out and preaching the gospel, and people are getting saved. So we have to recognize the opportunity. We need to realize that this is an opportunity. to. You know, it is hard when you're sharing the gospel, to just go up and say, hey, if you were to die, you know, would you go to heaven? And they're like, whoa, what are you talking about? But now, with corona, I mean, it's right here. You, people are afraid of it. What will happen to you if you get corona? Are you ready to meet God? I mean, it's a simple thing. Incredible opportunities that we have. Finally, God's sovereign. We're not going to fear We have incredible opportunities to preach the gospel. We also, fourthly, have a unique opportunity 
to love one another. Love one another. In Wuhan, the church is actively involved in helping the medical workers. They're feeding them. They're visiting those in quarantine. They're bringing food to them. They're preaching to the church members that are in quarantine. They're bringing them food. They're ministering to them. They're, they're praying for them. They are showing love. Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. What happens if someone gets coronavirus in our congregation? What happens if they get quarantined? That's our brothers. Those, this is our family. We don't just abandon them. We don't say, stay away from us. We want you to stay away from here. We'll come to you. But we have to show love to each other. We're not going to fear the same things. 1 John 3.16, listen to this. This is, man. John says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Christianity gets real now. Martin Luther, in his little essay, Should We Flee the Plague? You know, he kind of left it to Christian liberty. If you're weak, sure, flee. If you're strong, you stay. But there are some people that shouldn't flee, he said. Government officials, medical workers, police officers, they have an obligation. But he he was very clear, pastors don't flee. Shepherds of the sheep don't flee. You can't flee. He said, quoting from John 10, The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. The hireling sees the wolf and flees. This would hold, and I'm certainly not going to impose upon their conscience, but as elders and deacons of this congregation who have a responsibility for the well-being. of we, This is an opportunity for us to minister to the flock, and we need to do so, to love one another. So this is a unique time. I, I hope you, you would take these things to heart. God is sovereign. You'd be reminded of that today, that you can't stop His plan. You can rest and, and endure that and look at the opportunities that we have to preach the gospel and show love one to another. Just some practical considerations and we'll be done. I do believe absolutely in the sovereignty of God, but He's also given us wisdom to use and there are practical precautions to take during this whole thing. Just, you know, at night I always lock my doors. I believe God's sovereign, but he also gave me locks for my doors to keep out bad guys, so I'm going to use those, right? We put our seatbelts on because I don't want to die. God's sovereign, yeah, but the seatbelt is something that he's provided for me. So using precautions as we face this, it is, it's, we should use, some of you want to use, may use more precautions than others. You, if you may want a mask, then, then get a mask if you can find one. Wash your hands, right? Lots of washing hands. We're, we're making a few adjustments here. You notice there wasn't really a greeting time. So I think we're going to go to what I heard David call the corona uh, salute. You know, use your elbow or the fist bump. But we're just going to take, I remember Edie, Rob, used to say, you know, maybe she still does, after church you got to go home and wash off all the germs of fellowship. Do that. Wash your hands before you eat and all those things. Maybe we need to take... a special cleanup time for the church and do some special disinfection. But here's here's an important thing. If you're sick, 
or your children are sick, don't come to church. Not so much for your sake, but for our sake, because you love the brethren. You don't, you don't want this to happen to other people. And, and as a church, those that are sick, we need to be ready to minister to, not just kick you out, but don't come to church if you're sick. We don't have any plans to cancel services. And as, as long as we have a sound guy back there and a guy up here, we'll utilize our streaming services. I know in Wuhan, um, the church is operating. Many of their services are being digitally streamed because they, they're not coming together. And, th- and that may happen. And we, but I praise God that we're equipped to do something like that should we have to do this. Ultimately, just be ready. Be vigilant. Be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. I'm not going to fear this. I'll tell you why I don't fear this. Because we know the one who conquered death. We know the one that trampled death. Where's your sting, death? He's taking it away. That's, that's why Spurgeon and those guys, can, they can go in and, and minister because dying isn't loss. For the believer, dying is gain. We don't fear death the way the world does. He has died for our sins. He's qualified us for the inheritance. And we have this great hope that he is coming again. So folks, when you leave here today as a believer, this is not a day to express panic and anxiety and fear. Today is the day to proclaim our hope and confidence in Jesus Christ. And be light to this world of the hope that we have. And so I thought it would be very appropriate we go out this day singing that great hymn, that great song, Oh, Praise the Name, the one who conquered death. So I'm going to ask you to stand. I will pray. And I would remind you today that um, the coronavirus is real. It is scary, and people are dying from it. And there is no guarantee that you in this room won't get it. You could touch a handle. You could get it anywhere. You are so susceptible to this disease that is spreading like wildfire. And if you get it, you could die. There is no vaccine for it. And if you're not ready to meet God, you should be terrified. Because his wrath is coming, and his wrath will be far worse than this coronavirus. But in love, he's given us his son. He poured out his wrath on his son so that we would be spared that wrath. His son took our sins so that we could be forgiven, and we've received his righteousness. And you may have heard about Jesus before, but facing the reality that you could die, you need to seriously consider your relationship to him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that we have the confidence that you are in control of all things. And we can rest. And there really is no reason to fear. I pray that you would give us opportunities to proclaim the gospel. This day when people are nervous and shaky and maybe listening. This is, a, this is from you, Lord, to shake the nations from their ease, from their rest. May you give them ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.